Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. John Parker has served as pastor, evangelist, missionary president, and conference president for many years. God used this message mightily back in 2007 at the Midwest Brigham Women's Camp Meeting in Frankfort, Indiana. I know you will enjoy this message that he titles, The Peril of Emptiness. Well, I'm glad for the day I met him. I could not help but think tonight when uh, the quartet was singing of a day when a wild and rebellious at heart teenage boy who had, uh, like Brother Jim, set my heart to do a lot of things that I hadn't yet done and would have done, was well on my way in my heart to the fulfillment of those things. and. God sent a quartet from a Bible school in Salisbury, North Carolina. And in that quartet was a young man by the name of Sylvan. And Sylvan set this preacher's boy down and talked to me about serving Jesus. And it did something to me. I saw something in those guys that, that uh, made me hungry. And it was not long after that that I surrendered to the Lord. And I've never regretted that decision. I, uh, I just rejoice tonight that that Sylvan, who basically I had no contact with, is, is back. <laughs> and here in this quartet tonight. God used Sylvan Gray to speak to me, and I'm grateful for that. Sylvan doesn't remember it. I'll never forget it. God's good. Praise God. You've already been in service, those of you who came for the pre-service, for an hour and a half. I can get by with that in the Philippines. It's not anything for us to go two, maybe even three hours before the preacher ever gets up to preach. And people don't complain. They, they love it. But I know that I'm not in the Philippines tonight. I know that very well. And yet I have a, a message burning on my heart. And I believe I have the mind of the Spirit tonight. A number of years ago, as I was pastoring and had been pastoring the same church going on 20 years, I began to cry out to the Lord for
for something new and something different. I felt like I had the best people in the world. I had a great associate pastor, young Philip Brown, and he was such an asset in teaching and uh, discipling our people, and God was helping in many ways. Felt like theologically we were getting some things sorted out, and God was blessing in the church. I had the blessed privilege of pastoring the church that was Brother Bobby French's, Brother G.R. French's home church, the old Alice Wesleyan Methodist Church, which now uh, is the Easley Bible Methodist Church. And um, that's quite a blessing. And I was crying out to the Lord for something more than just good people and good theology. I said, Lord, you know, there's got to be something more than this. What's our problem? We're not seeing what I think we ought to be seeing. And God began to talk to me. You know, when you get honest with God, God gets honest with you. And uh, God essentially said to me, your theology is okay and even your living. You know, my people lived good. They were careful in their living, but there's a deeper level than just good living and good theology. We claim to be whole in His people. We're not ashamed of the fact that we're whole in His people. And God took my mind and my thoughts, as I said, in another camp meeting service to a couple of passages of Scripture. And that truth came to me so profoundly and had such a profound impact upon me personally and then on my congregation and and then it just seems like every time I have opportunity to preach for at least more than one or two services God just won't let me away from sharing the message that I feel compelled to share with you tonight and that's a little difficult because I look down I see the Glick sitting here and we work together in so many revival meetings and camp meetings and they probably heard this message I don't know how many times but I've heard their songs a bunch of times too and I love it every time I hear them. I don't know if they love the message every time they hear it, but I think Jerry Glick's a living testimony of what I'm going to preach to you about tonight. If you've been around Brother Jerry in the last year, God's done in his heart what I want to preach about tonight. Essentially, what I felt so strongly as a pastor was that we have good theology, we have good people, but we're living in emptiness. I want to talk to, to you about the peril of emptiness. From the book of Ephesians chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, I just want to cite those verses, verse 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul says, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of God is. Are you interested in what the will of God is? I am. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, he says in the next verse, but be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled is what that verse is saying. It's an ongoing, present tense, ongoing process. Be being filled with the Spirit. Our Lord, in preparing His disciples for His departure, told them in John 14, 17, The Spirit that dwelleth with you shall be in you. And He went on to tell them of what would happen when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came 
to fill them. Again, in Romans chapter 8, perhaps my most favorite passage in the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul says, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then he makes this statement, If any man have not the Spirit, he's none of his. If you don't have the Spirit living in you, and in, in that, that passage, that verse, he calls him the Spirit of Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit living in you, you don't belong to him. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now what concerns me, concerned me then and concerns me now, is the reality that are living, the reality of many that are living without the fullness of the Spirit in their lives. Many never go on into entire sanctification, some because they've never been genuinely saved. Probably that's the predominant reason why people don't go on into entire sanctification. I'm a firm believer that when people get genuinely saved, they want to go on to the fullness of the Spirit in their lives. Some because they've never sensed their need of it. They haven't been taught. They haven't been instructed. And with those, it's just being patient and being faithful. And then there are others who have stagnated spiritually in their walk with the Lord. There are many others, and perhaps this is the, the group that concerns me most tonight, that have leaked out. What a reality that is. You can have experience. You could have experienced the filling of the Spirit at some point in your past. But friends, you can cool off. You can grieve the Spirit. You can leak out, to use terms that are very inadequate. Be being filled with the Spirit. Carelessness and Busyness and materialism and lovelessness. My, what an issue that one is. You've left your first love. Neglect of the means of grace. It concerns me that in uh, the multitude of churches and camp meetings and conventions and revivals and all the rest of the stuff that we have, it's very easy for us to get neglectful of the means of grace. The house of God. You know how many people find it very comfortable to skip church and lay out a church, especially in areas like this one where there are many churches and there are many people that go to many churches. They, you don't know which church they go to. They're here one service and there another service and there another service and they bounce around so much nobody misses them when they're gone. And there are some who found it very convenient to be gone and no one know it. Neglect of the means of grace in, the, in your personal devotional life, your walk with God. You know, folks, the truth is tonight, the truth is it would be terrifying if somehow we knew just how shallow the devotional life of many who sit right here with us tonight is. Be frightening. Just how little we pray just how little we read the Scriptures, just how little we commune with God and God with us. The neglect of the means of grace. 
my friends, leaves us empty. And oh, how dangerous is that state. There are three passages I want to invite your attention to. The first is in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. It is here that our Lord is requested by a legalistic, loveless, sign-seeking bunch of Pharisees, very highly religious people, in verse 38, for a sign. And Jesus rebukes them and says, it's not signs you need but faith. And then he goes on to give them a couple of illustrations. And in verse 43, where I want to direct your attention for a moment, our Lord says to them in this parable or story, this illustration, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And notice this, friends. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he, the evil spirit, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked, sign-seeking generation. I call this the parable or the story of the empty house. For here is a man whose life represented by a house has experienced a life-changing work of grace. For his life has been in shambles, possessed by an evil spirit, obviously trashed and broken. But grace comes to this man's life. How do you know? Because of what happens. It only happens by grace. There is divine intervention. The evil spirit is evicted. Now, folks, AAs help a few people and 12-step programs and counselors and, and uh, support groups and a lot of other things can do a lot of things for people. But to get the evil spirit out of someone's life, it'll take more than AA. It'll take more than a 12-step program. It is only by the power of God that the evil spirit is evicted. Aren't you glad for the day when the Lord came into your life and put the evil spirit out of the house? But that's not where God stops. God wants to do more. And in this, this man's life, there's a beautiful word. This man has been swept. God cleans up the house. Amen? When God empties the house of the evil spirit, he doesn't say, job finished. No, he says, we've got a job to do here. Let's get busy cleaning up the mess that's been left in this man's life by the evil spirit that lived and dwelled there. So God begins to clean up the house. Are you thankful tonight for the day when God began to clean up your house? God began to take out all the filth and the trash 
the pollution, the corruption that Satan had brought into your life, God does a masterful job of house cleaning, doesn't he? Praise God. I looked at Merle and Sylvan here tonight and rejoiced. You'd never, you'd never know these guys have been anything but, but uh, holiness men all their lives. God does a beautiful job of cleaning up the house. Praise God. But you know God's not satisfied to just clean up the house and evict the evil spirit. There's another word in the King James that's kind of an interesting word. This man's house has been emptied of the evil spirit, swept and garnished. I'll never forget the first time I bumped into that word. I was an ignorant little Harker's Island boy that spoke such Harker's Island lingo that you couldn't understand me, and I'd been shrimping and making a little money, and one of the girls from our church had gone off to Bible school and came home for the summer, and I decided I wanted to take her out. It wasn't a date. She was so much older than me, and but anyway, whatever. I was excited about it, and uh, I had the money. She had the time. You know, I've got the money, honey, if you've got the time. So we went out. And she, her, her father had been a military officer. She traveled. She knew about that kind of stuff. I had never been out in my life. I think maybe we'd been to McDonald's a time or two. When you're the oldest of ten children, you don't go out, especially when your dad's a hole in his preacher. We went out to a nice, fancy restaurant. It was Italian seafood, I don't know what all, and the menu came, and I didn't have a clue how to read the menu. She had to help me figure out what to order, and I finally saw something that I thought would just, I would like. I ordered it. I sat there like a big shot waiting on it to come, and finally the plate came, and they set it down in front of me. It looked really, really good. And right up on the top of it was this little green thing. So I picked it up and put it in my mouth to eat it. One of the nastiest tasting things I ever tried to eat in my life. I've eaten better grass, straw. And I looked up, wondering if the rest of the meal was going to be like this, and she's looking at me with this real amused look on her face, and she said, why are you eating that? I said, well, it's on my plate. My mama taught me I'm supposed to eat everything on my plate. She said, you're not supposed to eat that, John Parker. Then why'd they put it there? She said, that's garnish. I don't remember ordering garnish. No, she said, it's to make it pretty. Pretty? Who cares if it's pretty? We're going to eat it. We didn't come here to look at it. We came here to eat it. I don't care if it's pretty. I've learned since then that it does matter to ladies if it's pretty. My wife and daughters fuss if the colors don't match, you know. We've got too much yellow. We've got too much brown. We need some color. Get the food color now. Dye the corn blue or something, you know. Who cares what color it is? If it's good... Garnish simply means to beautify, to decorate. 
Did you know that God does that in the life that He comes and evicts the evil spirit from? When God begins to do work in a man's life, He's not content to just kick out the evil spirit and clean up the house. God wants to redecorate the house. God wants to beautify that house. That's exactly what He does. He beautifies the meek with salvation. How blessed it is to serve Him in the beauty of holiness. God's people are a beautiful people. And the work of grace God does in a life beautifies that life. Hallelujah. But you know this man is like so many. I can almost hear his testimony telling about what a wreck and what a ruin, what a mess his life was in before Jesus found him. And how wonderful it was that Jesus came in and put out the unclean spirit and cleaned up his house and began to beautify his house. He'd have a great testimony, wouldn't he? But God doesn't do all of that for a house to sit empty. Now does he? God doesn't put out unclean spirits and clean up houses and beautify houses for them to sit empty. No, my friends, there's just one reason why God does all of that. And that is that that house might become a fit dwelling place for His Holy Spirit. And the unclean spirit returns. And he finds what he so often finds. He finds a beautiful, clean, redecorated house. That's empty. And he doesn't just move back in, though. No, he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And the last state of that man's worse than the first. Are there a reel of names going through your mind right now? If you're a pastor, I'm sure that you pastors are sitting here thinking about one after another, after another, down through the years who've come to Christ with their lives trashed by Satan, have seen God clean up their lives, evict the unclean spirit, make progress up to a point, but when God wants to move in and possess the house and fill the house, and own the house. They balk. All they want is a fix-up job, a clean-up job, a redecorating job. That's all. They don't want God to take control of their lives, and so they choose to remain empty. Hear those words. The last state of that man is worse than the first. Friend, it is exceedingly dangerous for you to live in emptiness tonight. Turn with me, if you will, to another passage of Scripture that is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Our Lord is teaching us here in response to His disciples' request to teach them to pray. He's teaching us in a beautiful passage on prayer. The first verses of the chapter, He gives us that prayer. Notice in verse 3, Luke's, Luke's uh, account of that prayer, he says, Give us day by day our daily bread. Friends, there's something about that that is important. As Christians, 
we are to pray, Lord, give us day by day. Not just back there in that camp meeting years ago when we went to an altar of prayer and God filled us with His Spirit, but day by day, fill us. Bread of heaven, feed us day by day. Remember, the Israelites had to go out on a daily basis and gather the manna. They were not to store it up and hold it over. Friends, that's the way it is in our personal walk with God. If you're going to have the bread of heaven in your soul, you're going to have to gather it day by day. And then, as though to emphasize the importance of that, verse 5, he gives us a story. And he said, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Those are sad words to me, friends. Those are sad words to me because I see a lot of people living right there. I have nothing to set before him. And he from within, verse 7 shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many, notice it, as many as he needed. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. Hallelujah. He doesn't have to be talked into it, friend. He longs, he yearns to meet your need. To supply the cupboard of your soul. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Look at what he says, verse 11. If your son asks bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks an egg, will he give him, offer him a scorpion? No, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. Listen, friends, what's he talking about here? How much more shall your heavenly Father give, what? The Holy Spirit to them that ask him. What is it that is the bread of ministry to a hurting world? that feeds a hungry child, that feeds a needy friend in his journey. It's the Holy Spirit. Ask, it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? And yet, friends, and yet, friends, there are many who are living like this man with an empty cupboard. 
A friend in his journey comes and there is nothing to offer him. They're living a self-centered life, taking care of their own needs, feeding themselves. But there's no desire, no interest in feeding others. Well, friend, let me ask you tonight, how interested are you in preparing your own soul to feed others, to meet the needs of others? No, we self-centered Americans are just interested in feeding ourselves. In many homes, we're not even interested in feeding our own family, our own children anymore. Everybody kind of fends for themselves. A typical American home never has a family meal. When, when a meal is prepared and planned and put on the table and there's a time for the family to gather around the table and share the news of the day and fellowship together. I'm telling you, friends, those are the most precious memories of my life. We tend children around that table and the excitement of the day and all the good things that we had to share. Those are the precious memories. And there are a lot of kids missing out on that. Their mom doesn't have the energy or the time or the interest in feeding her family. Somebody gets a $5 bill and a, a send-off to McDonald's or a pizza's called for or a fast food carry-out or whatever. It's everybody for themselves. Living life with an empty cupboard, just getting by. You know, there's a lot of people living that way spiritually. They're living on spiritual junk food. And it's not very spiritual. Christian radio and devotional books and CDs and cassettes and a lot of other things have taken the place of feeding one's soul. There are a lot of people that, that get up in the morning and rush off to work and feel like tuning the radio in the car on the way to work to the Christian radio station and hearing a couple of songs and a little blurb of something is sufficient to feed their soul. It's not, friends. It's not. It's especially not sufficient to feed your soul so that you'd have something out of your soul to minister to the needs of someone else at work. Right? Living in emptiness. But look at this man. He has a friend in need. A friend in his journey is come to me. I find that phrase, in his journey, interesting. You know, friends, life is a journey. We're all on a journey, and that journey will at some point bring us to a time of crises and a time of need. Not only those of us who are saved, who know the Lord, but those who are not saved. Life will bring them to a crises moment, a crises hour. And in that crises hour, they're going to think about those that profess to have a personal relationship with God. Those in their lives that are Christians. They're going to suddenly remember them. They're going to turn in their direction. They're going to knock on their door. Now sad it is that so often they find what this man found. Empty hands. I have nothing to set before him. That hard living, wild cursing, swearing man that works beside you at work some Monday morning will come in his eyes red and swollen and if you notice 
and care enough to ask him if things are all right. You'll find out that things aren't all right. He'll tell you how his wife packed her bags, took the children and left him in his world, came crashing in. What's he saying? He's looking at you and saying, man, is there any bread in the cupboard of your soul for me? You may not say it that way, friend, but that's exactly what he's saying. That long lost brother or sister that's been out of the picture for a long time, their life messed up, entangled in sin out there somewhere will sometime, some night, spontaneously out of the clear blue call you and the phone will ring and you'll pick it up and suddenly it's their voice on the other end of the line. And if you have enough of discernment and enough of the compassion of Christ in your heart, you'll suddenly become aware that they're not just calling you just for no reason, but they're walking through that time of need. And what they're saying to you, though they may never say the words, is, do you have enough of the bread of heaven in your soul to feed me? I need bread. Notice in this man's life it was a late hour. At midnight. That's significant. Friends, I believe we are living in that midnight hour. The last hour. Verse 7 tells us that as he goes to get bread from his friend, he hears the door is now shut. Doors represent opportunities. And friends, let me tell you tonight, one opportunity after another after another is closing. It's past. Opportunities are passing. If you're going to get your, your soul refilled, if you're going to get the bread of heaven in the cupboard of your soul, now is the time. And my friends, when you have that bread in the cupboard of your soul, oh, what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes. Some time ago, even when my children were young, I was praying one day and I said to the Lord, Lord, help me somehow to have in my life and heart what the prodigal's father had that made that boy want to come back home so that if my children ever go astray, Lord, they'll want to come back home. You ever pray like that? Lord, help me to have something in my life that makes them want to come back to Father's house. And the Lord on that day said, Son, are you interested in knowing what the prodigal's father had? I am, Lord. I sure am. Then get your Bible and read it. And I remember saying, Lord, I know that story basically from heart. I can quote it to you. And the Lord said, No, read it. So I got my Bible and began to read about the prodigal who took his inheritance and went to the far country and there wasted it in riotous living. That hard-earned money of his father and then he, a famine arose in the land. He began to be in great want and joining himself to a citizen of the country, sent into the fields to feed swine. There he fain would have filled his belly with the husk the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. But before he gave up, he began to think he came to himself. Remember what he thought? He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? Bread sounded pretty good to that boy in that hog pen. And he's thinking, my father's servants 
have more bread than they can eat. Not just his sons, but his servants have more bread than they can eat. What did that say about the prodigal's father? That said, there's a man with a well-stocked cupboard. And the prodigal said, it's foolish for me to die here in this hog pen. I'll just go back and be one of his servants. I'd be a whole lot better to be one of his servants than to die here, his son, in this hog pen. And so he got up. He practiced his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of your well-fed servants. But he never got to make his speech, did he? He started it. But before he ever got home, that father saw him while he was yet a great way off. And the father ran and fell on his neck and hugged him and kissed him and sent the servant scurrying in every direction to gather the best robe to put it on him and the shoes on his feet and the signet ring on his finger, the credit card. And then he turned to those servants and he said, And by the way, boys, that fatted calf killing. My son's home. And I'm farm boy enough to know that you don't have fatted calves standing around for no good reason. I believe there was a day a few months before that the father walked out after that prodigal has gone down to the far country and he says to those servants, hey, take that best steer and pin him up over there and start pouring the feed to him. Yes, sir. Why are we doing this, sir? <laughs> well, one of these days my boy's coming home. And when he comes home, we're going to have a feast. Pour the feed to that steer. There's a day coming when we're going to celebrate the return of my son. And that day, that father looking over the shoulder of his son that's come home winks at those servants and said, Boys, he's home. Kill the fatted calf. They not only had bread, but they had beefsteak. Prime rib. Let me tell you something. If we as parents had what the prodigal's father had, there'd be more of ours coming back home. And I'm saying, oh God, oh God, help me to have what that prodigal's father had that makes them want to come back home. Notice with me there was a source of supply in this man's life here in Luke 11, a sufficient supply. He'd been living on borrowed bread. But he doesn't have to live on borrowed bread. Jesus says, if you'll just ask, you'll receive. If you'll seek, you'll find. If you'll knock, it shall be opened unto you. And then he goes on to say, I'll not only give you enough, but I'll give you specifically what you're needing. If you as a father give what your child needs, if he comes and asks for an egg, you won't give him something else or bread. You won't give him a stone. You give him what he needs. And I, as your Father, know what you need, and that is you need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't minister to the needs of a hungry world unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And your Father delights to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him. Friends, I believe you can live in such a way that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, there's enough bread in the cupboard of your soul that when you encounter a needy soul, there is something spontaneous that wants to give out, that wants to minister to that need wherever you are. 
And I've been asking God to help me live that way, and not only live that way, but to give it out. Every opportunity I have to give. Some time ago, I bumped into a man that I knew in a business relationship in Walmart. And I said, hey, Ronnie, how in the world are you doing, man? And Ronnie looked at me, and his eyes were red. And his lip trembled, and he said, preacher, I'm not doing good. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, buddy. What's the problem? He said, preacher, my wife's left me. And it just seemed like my whole world's falling apart. You know what the almost, the, the, the words that were right there, ready to come out, you know what they are. Well, buddy, I'll pray for you. It was about that close. And the Holy Spirit said, why not now? Why not here? I said, Ronnie, I'm so sorry to hear that, man. I know your heart must be breaking. I know you must be hurting. Can I pray for you right now? <laughs> Ronnie began to weep. He said, oh, I wish you would. We were standing near the pool supplies in Walmart. I said, let's just step in this aisle right here. We got out of the middle of the aisle in the pool supplies. I put my arm around Ronnie's shoulder. I said, God, my buddy Ronnie is hurting, and I know you care about him right now, Lord. And God broke my heart up and broke Ronnie's heart up, and we wept and prayed right there in Walmart, and the power of the Holy Spirit was felt in the pool supplies in Walmart. year before this past spring, I was at IH convention and it just seemed the Spirit put his thumb in my back a couple of times to go over to my room in the motel. And finally I realized that it was God that was prompting me, so I went to the room. I thought maybe I just needed to get away and rest a minute. And I went over and got a bottle of water. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Services were going on and sat down to rest just a minute and I'd hardly sat down and my door just opened up. And in walked the hotel maid. And she was very apologetic. She said, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. I, wouldn't, I didn't mean to in, interrupt and interfere here. She said, I was cleaning your, your room hours ago, and I got called off upstairs to an emergency situation. And I've just finished, and I've come back down to finish. Do you mind if I finish? I said, absolutely not. And the Holy Spirit said to me, this is why I sent you back to the room. I said to that black hotel maid who bore the marks of sin very predominantly on her countenance, I said to her, what's your name? And she told me it was Charmaine. Charmaine, are you married? Do you have a family? She said, no, sir, I'm not married, but yes, I have children. I have three children. I said, Charmaine, very important question. Do you know Jesus is your personal Savior? She said, I go to church. I said, Charmaine, that's really not what I'm asking you. I want to know if you really know Jesus. She looked at me, heard on her face, and she said, no, sir, I really don't. And I said, Charmaine, why? Why don't you know him? She said, I'm afraid. I think about it once in a while. I know I need to, but I'm afraid. Charmaine, do you know why Satan 
wants to make you afraid of giving your heart to Jesus Christ. He wants to cheat your children out of having a Christian mother, a happy mother. He wants to cheat you out of having the peace that comes in your heart when you have your sins forgiven and you know Jesus is your Savior. And Charmaine, he wants to cheat you out of a home in heaven. She began to cry. Said, Charmaine, wouldn't you really like to know Jesus? She said, oh, I would. Said, Charmaine, let me tell you something. I have a display across the street in the convention center, and I've been busy over there all day. But, you know, this afternoon the Holy Spirit's been saying to me, go to your room, go to your room, go to your room. And I didn't know why I came to this room until you walked in the door. And then I knew. God cares about you. He cares enough that He disturbed me and sent me to this room so I could talk to you about knowing Jesus. She really began to cry then. I said, God must love you very, very much. I said, would you not just like to give your heart to the Lord right now? She said, I sure would. I said, sit down here. And I said, let's pray. You just pray after me. And I began to pray. And let me tell you something, friend. I didn't have to pray much for Charmaine. I said maybe one, two sentences. And Charmaine caught a hold of that thing. And she began to confess her sins to God. She began to cry out for forgiveness. And I was just the amen corner. And God settled down in that room in a powerful, powerful way. In a few minutes, Charmaine's sins were forgiven. There was a shine on her face and joy in her countenance. And we were rejoicing and praising God that Charmaine had discovered the joy of sins forgiven. Friends, I believe deep in my heart that God wants me to live in a way that wherever it is, I have enough of the bread of heaven in my soul that I can give out to a hungry soul. How sad it is to say I have nothing. I have nothing. One last passage. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. You know the passage well. Here our Lord is teaching us of the coming, the second coming, the coming of the bridegroom. And he gives us another story. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. What's the difference? Fullness and emptiness. That's the only difference here, friends. The only difference. Fullness and emptiness. Notice what happens. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Wise and foolish. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. 
There in Luke 11 is a man looking to borrow bread. Here in Matthew 25, it's a foolish virgin looking to borrow oil. But notice the difference. The wise say, as the, as the foolish request oil, verse 9, but the wise answered saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready, who were the ready? The wise. What was the difference in the wise and the foolish? Fullness and emptiness. What made them ready? Fullness. The wise went in with the bridegroom to the marriage and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. My friends, it's one thing to live in emptiness and because of your emptiness have nothing out of which you can give to a needy and hungry soul missing opportunities for witness and ministry. But my friends, it's altogether another thing for you to miss the coming of the bridegroom because of emptiness. How many there will be, my friends, how many there will be who will miss the coming of the bridegroom because of emptiness. If this is a picture of the church, and most believe it is, of people waiting on the coming of the bridegroom, of people at ease, slumbering and sleeping, of people who are pure, they're all virgins. They've all maintained their purity, their separation. But 50% of them are living in emptiness. Fifty percent of them. I've often said I don't think you could have walked into the church of the virgins and looked at that crowd and told who were the wise and who were the foolish. They didn't look differently. They all had the same standards. They all went to the same church. They all got along. They loved one another. They weren't fussing and fighting. They were actually slumbering and sleeping. Sounds like the crowds I preached to. Getting along. Comfortable. At rest, at ease in Zion, but empty. And that only comes to light when the bridegroom comes, that critical hour and the frightening discovery. Our lamps are gone out. Our lamps are gone out. And the plea for borrowed oil, give us of your oil, give us of your oil, friends. You may get by on borrowed bread, but you can't get by on borrowed oil. It was too late to borrow. Too late to buy. Notice the similarity in this passage, in this story, in the one in Luke 11, in verse 6. At midnight, verse 10, the door was shut. This is not just another door of opportunity, friends. This is the door that is shut. And they that were ready went in, and those that were empty, those that were not ready, were left behind. Left because of emptiness. 
to hear those words, verse 12, I know you not. Oh, Lord, sure you do. You know me. Pure. Numbered with the pure. Part of the church. Waiting on the coming of the bridegroom. But empty. The peril of emptiness. Perhaps in this congregation tonight, there's someone to whom that first story spoke. Your life has been in shambles, but Jesus Christ has come and made a difference. He's cleaned up your life, cast out the evil spirit, brought beauty into your life, friends. But He wants to do more. He wants to fill you. Don't live in emptiness. Perhaps there's someone here, it may be a mom, a dad, a grandparent, to whom the second story is spoken. You're thinking about your children, how they've strayed from God, how they've gone to the far country. You're thinking about those that you ought to have a sufficient supply of bread in the cupboard of your soul to draw them back, to minister to their needs when they do come back. But the Holy Spirit spoken to you tonight and you realize that you are not living in fullness. You're living with nothing to set before them. Perhaps there's someone in this crowd tonight. The third story here from Matthew 25 is spoken to. You look like a Christian. You do what Christians do. You go where Christians go. You don't go where Christians don't go. You're numbered among God's pure people. You're happy and content there. But the truth is, long ago, the oil has leaked out of your vessel and there's no oil with your vessel, in your vessel with your lamp. You're living in emptiness. I'd like for the Tillises to come and prepare to sing for us at the close here tonight. While they're coming, let me just share with you an incident that woke this preacher up a number of years ago. I'd gone to pastor a new church, gotten acquainted with the men in my church, the people in my church, and among them was a dear brother who was a, a veteran of World War II, a, uh, an ordinary man. You've most often found him in bib overalls, down to earth. Could tell you stories of the war, tell you of his adventures and just a guy you could not help but love, and he lived such a good life, clean life. Everybody would tell you he had good religion. He was a member of the board of my church, active in the church. Everything I knew about him was good. But he had some physical problems that came, and he was scheduled for surgery, and I was there and had prayer with him, and away he went to surgery and came back. Everything seemed to be in order, and then things began to change. His condition deteriorated. Nurses and doctors were coming and going from the room, and his condition grew worse and worse until he was moved back into intensive care, and the family went to the waiting area, and we were there worried and waiting and praying when a nurse came into that intensive care ward and asked to see the pastor, and I stepped away from the family, and she said, Pastor, He's calling for you. Can you come quickly? And I followed her back into that cubicle 
where the medical professionals were scurrying around that room to the bedside of that good man, my board member. And when his eyes connected with mine, I've seen the look of panic in faces, but friends, I've never seen it quite like I did that day. That good man, that board member, reached out to me as though he were a drowning man and clasped hold of me and pulled me to him. And in a raspy voice, he said to me, Preacher, pray for me. I'm not ready to meet God. I began to try to pray, friends. There was so much activity around the bed. I was trying to pray, but I didn't feel like I was getting very far. And the nurse interrupted me and said, Preacher, I'm sorry, but we've got to take him back to surgery. You'll have to step out of the room. And I'm telling you, when I walked out of that room and they pushed him out the other side, headed towards surgery, I thought, oh my God, please don't let that man die in that condition. I went down to the little chapel and took his wife with me and we knelt down. I didn't tell her what he'd said to me. We just began to earnestly pray. Unbeknownst to us, things had even gotten worse as they pushed him from uh, the the uh, ICU ward to, to surgery. The nurse began to cry out, I'm losing him, I'm losing him. And the doctor gave her instructions what to do. They rushed into surgery. They didn't even prep him. They opened him back up and found that a vessel had broken loose and that he had almost hemorrhaged to death. The doctor clamped it off with his fingers and held it while they put blood into his veins. And it was moments, milliseconds, the doctor told us later, before his death. They were able to staunch the flow of the blood, rescue that man and bring him back. And hours later, we were told he was well enough that I could go back into ICU again to see him. I walked back into that ward, friend, and looked down in the face of that man that not so long before had told me, I'm not ready to meet God. And he looked up at me weak, pale, and he said, Oh, preacher, thank God. I didn't die. He said, Preacher, I wasn't ready to meet God. He said, I've got business to do with God. Will you help me? I said, I'll do anything I can possibly do. And he said to me, preacher, I've let some problems with people create some bitterness in my heart. In my spirit, I've grieved the Holy Spirit out of my heart. And he said, I didn't even realize it. I really wasn't owning up to it until a while ago when I thought I was dying. And suddenly I realized that I'm empty. I don't have the Holy Spirit in my heart. And he said, preacher, I think if I'd have died, I'd have missed heaven. He said, pray with me. We prayed and sweet forgiveness flooded down into that room in this presence of the Holy Spirit. And he said, Preacher, if you'll go and get this one. And he began to name names. He said, I, want, I don't want to waste any time. I want to talk to them. I want to get this thing fixed up. You know, he wasn't worried about whose fault it was either. I took the list. And I went to those people. And I shared with them 
his concern to make sure everything was right and asked them if they would go and they went one by one and that man gladly and quickly settled every every issue and every problem and the power of the Holy Spirit came into that man's life in a way I could not have believed before. I thought I had a good man in my church, but friends, I had a saint after that. We could hardly sing a song without him being on his feet with his hands lifted and the tears streaming down his face. The glory of God shining from his countenance. The results of that surgery were not good. That man had cancer and his condition began to deteriorate. And over an extended period of time, he battled that cancer, but he lost. And my friends, I'll never forget when hospice had been called in, that simple little mill house that he lived in, I gathered there day after day with his family thinking it would be the last day, watched the ravages of that awful disease take hold of his body, but never one moment did I ever see the slightest trace of apprehension or fear cross his countenance. Not once. All I saw was victory, praise, victory. We sang the hymns and rejoiced as the angels came and carried that man's spirit off to heaven. And the family purposed in their hearts that day they'd meet him. What was the difference? Fullness. <laughs> Fullness. I've often wondered what might have happened, what would have happened if my good church member, my board member, had died that day. Had I not known, I would have gotten up and sincerely and honestly preached a message that would have implied that he was rejoicing with the saints in heaven. Everybody would have thought that was the case, but eternity might have revealed a different story. Friends, are you living in emptiness tonight? Jesus is coming. He's coming for those that are filled. Stand with me if you will. The Tillises are going to sing. I'm not going to pull or plead with you tonight. But if God's speaking to your heart, why don't you come and say, Lord, you said ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open. I'm asking tonight, Lord. I'm seeking. I don't want to take the risk of living one moment with any less than fullness. As a parent, as a grandparent, I need the cupboard of my soul stocked. If you'll ask, he'll fill you with his spirit. Let's be obedient to him while they sing. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention. Featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.